You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. In the final episode of Season 5, I spoke with a talented and passionate actress and producer, Deborah Ann Bird. In our conversation, she mentioned one of the professors that had a significant impact on her own training and understanding of theater. Deborah Ann spoke so highly of this mentor that I looked her up and decided to ask her to come on the podcast as well. But Elizabeth Swain is so much more than just a professor of theater. She is a Broadway actress with national tours and television credits as well. She is quite a prolific director, with a specialty in classics like Shakespeare and the Greek tragedies. Elizabeth is also a member of the prestigious Antius Theater Company in Los Angeles. And in today's episode, you'll be hearing three stories from her life and career. One about her first theater tour before she had actually decided to be an actress. Another story about balancing Broadway and motherhood. And finally, a recounting of how and why she was ousted from Barnard College. As you'll hear, Elizabeth is the perfect guest for Women's History Month as she provides such a unique and wide perspective through her decades of work, both on stage and off. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Swain. I'm originally from Birmingham, England, and then New York, and now I live in Los Angeles. I'm a member of the Antius Company in Los Angeles, where it's mainly a classical company, not entirely. I have directed there. I'm about to direct another play there. And I have acted in, I think, three productions in the time I've been there. And then I'm a freelance if anybody else wants me. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each week as they bring us three stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can sign up for the Win Me newsletter and learn more about useful artist resources. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, Elizabeth, it is so great to meet you and to have you here on the podcast. I'm so appreciative for you coming on. Thank you. And I'm delighted to be here. And thank you, Deborah Ann, because she instigated this, I gather. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When I had her on at the end of season five, she spoke so highly of you. I started looking you up. So I'm so glad that we were able to connect and that you were able to join. (laughs) Well, she was very generous. She was very generous. But anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. So the first story that I wanted to discuss was during your time as a student at the London School of Economics. Uh, Now, even though it's an economic school, they did have a drama society that you were part of, and you got to be part of a touring production after your first year there of A Midsummer's Night Dream. So this was in the summer of 1961. It was to be a tour in Israel that was organized and arranged by one of your fellow Israeli students at the school. Now, I have been on a couple of national tours myself here in the U.S., but this tour <laughs> was was kind of unlike anything I've ever heard of because you actually traveled by ship from Venice to Haifa, Israel, which is actually the third largest city in Israel. And this must have been like a daunting experience for someone like you. I mean, you you literally had just started acting that year. It was thrilling. I mean, there I was going off with, I, you know, I can't even remember, I think there may have been about 
12 or 14 of us, of my fellow crazy students that I'd been doing theatre with all year instead of all the economics I should have been doing. And um, we had to get a train from London and then we had to go, our first ship was to get across the channel. And then we would take a train down to Venice. And that was where we picked up the boat. But we managed to get to look around Venice a bit, too, because we had a day in Venice because we stayed in a hotel one night. And so we had a wonderful time looking around Venice. Then we got onto the ship. We were told to buy some food because there won't be any food available to you. Food and water. I think they were, they were going to allow us water on the, on the boat because we were going to be sleeping on the deck in a sleeping bag. Like, like outside on the deck? outside on a deck that was it it was debt class well we were students you know we didn't have any money i mean thank heavens for this wonderful man that arranged to be essentially spawned oh the funniest part about also this was you know marks and spencers is a very famous store in england it sells now as well it sells food and everything in those days it only sold clothes so it decided it would give us something to take with us so it gave underwear to all the girls so all the girls had identical underwear. So when it came to laundry time, you could never figure out whose was which. And all the boys got a pair of pants and a, and a shirt, also identical. So, I mean, it was, I mean, just fun things like that. So we lived on the deck and we were, you know, we'd go over stuff because we were going to start acting at the play where we got there. We'd rehearsed it, of course, in London. And that, that was absolutely, I mean, every time we'd, we'd stop at various ports, I mean, we stopped in Rhodes, we stopped in Cyprus, and we were able to get off the boat and look around. So it was a wonderful experience just in terms of seeing the world. And was and that then, the only time that you could get food was when you got off the ship? Exactly. So we'd have to stock up on food because we on the boat, we, I mean, and the, there was one room that had a couple of stalls in it, which was fine when it was just us. But by the time we got to the end of the journey, there were probably way over 100 people living on deck because we were picking up all these people who was maybe some of them were sort of refugees. They were immigrants who were going to move to Israel and they joined us on deck. And we started to talk to them, of course. And the last night, someone got out an instrument and started playing music. And then somebody else from somewhere else started to play some more music. And then people were singing and then people wanted to show us their native dances. I mean, they're from all over. And uh, and we, I think we've probably sang some silly bawdy pub songs, but we also did a bit of a midsummer for them. And it was just this astounding evening on the deck. And until suddenly we noticed all the first class passengers were looking through this sort of grill at us and cheering us on. They were supposed <laughs> to be at this very posh do downstairs with the captain. And in despair, the captain announced over the loudspeaker that it was open deck, take down that grill, and we could go, we could go and join everybody else down in the first class areas. So we got to eat, but I say because of the bathroom situation, we, we all fled to the bathrooms. <laughs> because it had been very primitive up to that point. But anyway, so that was how we got to Israel. And then once we were in Israel, when we were in the cities, we played in the Habima Theater, which is the theater in Haifa. In Jerusalem, we played at the Y, YMCA, which is also the major, a major theatrical venue, at least certainly was in 1961. And then 
I know when we went down to Elat, which was nothing was in Elat. It's now a big Miami Beach type of tourist town. And we did a performance on the beach. And then we do our performances. You know, sometimes they would erect something for us or there was a little stage in the place. Otherwise, we were usually doing it on the grass. We were totally flexible. So talk about a learning experience. You know, you don't have to rely on anything. It's all take it as it is. Take it in, use it. So on the ship, you were deemed, I guess these actors were deemed, you know, second or even third class citizens, so to speak. How did you feel as far as the, the treatment or your status there on the ship? Well, it was sort of amusing. We, we didn't care. We were, we, were, we were college kids. You know, we were 19, 20 years old. It was just, it was an adventure. But the, the interesting thing was that the sail, it was a Greek ship, by the way, whatever that means. But these Greek sailors would come up to all of the young women in the company and sort of say, your face is dirty. You want to come to my cabin and wash it up. Mm-hmm. So they were hitting on all of us, but we said, no, we liked our dirty faces. And that was it. We just, <laughs> it was, it was a great thing to do. And the, I mean, remember, we just left home. So this level of freedom, I mean, at least when we were in London, it wasn't that we weren't free once we were in London and away from home and parent parental control. But, you know, we had we had jobs to do. It just it just but the freedom felt so wonderful that we didn't have to answer to anyone but ourselves. That's so much fun. Now, now, did it did it feel like an adventure or did it ever seem like crazy? Like, what am I doing? No, it was an adventure from start to finish. It was just heaven. I mean, you know, and that was enough to make anyone say, well, theater, yeah, this is maybe what I should be doing. (laughs) (laughs) So did that tour, did it cement your interest and wanting to pursue theater further? Not so much because I still had more economics to learn. So I wasn't doing so much at that point. So whenever you came back from the tour, then it was back to economics again. And at the London School of Economics, you were, would you say, a distinct minority as a woman at that time? There weren't many of you? There were very few women studying economics. Most of the women were studying sociology, and several of them were studying law. And there were a few, but definitely in the minority. And also in terms of people to look up to, there was a woman named Robinson. She was probably the only really known female economist at the time. Now, of course, there are many, but it, it wasn't a field that had been wide open at that point to women. And, you know, I mean, and I certainly had I really been impassioned by economics, I would have fought like hell. But um, I was getting, <laughs> realizing this wasn't my life. <laughs> but you did have an internship, though, you, you know, whenever you came to the U.S., and you were one of 12 in this particular program for this internship, and you were the only woman. How was that experience? Well, because I, we, you know, we would meet once a week, all of us, and I learned that the men were being treated magnificently. They were all being given projects to do. They were being supervised, and, and they were learning, and they were getting so excited about it, and they felt this was their future. And I was really looked upon as the clerical help for the summer. Would you put those checks in numerical order? I don't think you were probably too young to remember when you used to get all the checks you wrote back and you had to tabs on them I was given the most menial of tasks it had nothing to do with economics and I was getting more and more mad 
but you know the guys were very upset for me too it wasn't you know and then we had to go down to Washington for a big seminar and you know the guys were, were just full of the wonderful summer they were having and I just had to explain that I don't think that the company that hired me had lived up to the obligations that they had signed on for they paid me my you know my weekly wage but that's all they did for me um, at the beginning of the summer, I had bought a Greyhound bus ticket for $99, which gave me 99 days of unlimited travel. So I got on the Greyhound bus and took off and went, over, went across the country on it. I was supposed to go with my London roommate who had come over too, and, uh, and she broke up with her boyfriend and got miserable and went home to London and abandoned me. So I said, well, I have to go by myself, which is what I did. And it was, um, that was fun. I can't say the number of hours I spent on a Greyhound bus was fun. I did win some money in Reno. I remember stopping there and going in and looked up these nurses that I had met in New York who were, they were English and they were nursing their way across the world. And they said they were going to be in San Francisco. So I got hold of them and they invited me to stay there for the rest of the time that I was there. So that was fun. And then I realized I was going to miss my plane home. So I just called mummy and daddy and said, I think I've missed my plane, so I'll stay in New York for a bit. <laughs> now, after the internship, did you go back to the London school to finish up, or was that internship? No, kind of... no, that was all done, all done. So comparing your time in theater and within the economic side of schooling, did you find that same gender imbalance on the theater side? You know, I don't think I thought about it at that point because, you know, that was the point at which I, I, I got, I took classes, started to get jobs and I had nice roles. So, no, I didn't feel like a gender imbalance. I was playing the girl roles. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> and I mean, it's only later that I became a fierce feminist on these issues. And, I, you know, I ended up teaching a course at Barnard on women in theatre, which is what I also went to taught when I had the fellowship down in Tennessee. I did a women in theatre course there and caused a lot of problems. So my sensitivity to the roles of women in these worlds came later. And certainly one of the structures of that drama society there at LSE was to have an honorary president. And during your time there, one of those was Vanessa Redgrave. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now I have to ask what it was like to receive advice and support from such an iconic actress. Oh, she was fabulous. She just kicked her feet up and talked to us like we were, she was a student with us. I mean, she, she, she was absolutely wonderful. And she would come to our parties. I mean, she just hung out with us when she could. I mean, it, it, was, it was wonderful. And the nice thing is that later I met Lynn Redgrave and we actually became friends because our kids played together for a couple of two or three years when we were all doing the same things. And then I re-met uh, Vanessa at that point, of course. So that was fun. Yeah, that sounds like quite an experience. And, you know, and, and the other person that I mentioned, Arnold Wesker, um, I don't know how well known he is here now, but in the 50s, he was the hottest playwright going in England, you know, along with John Osborne and all those people. And he uh, had just had this series of plays that had been done at the Royal Court Theatre. And, and he was this very left-wing playwright. And he did this, and then... In New York, he came to New York to do one of, his, one of his famous plays called The Kitchen. 
and he wanted me to be in it and I'd already signed off to do something else and I couldn't be in it and I was so sad because it was so nice that a playwright wanted you in his play <laughs> and um, it was and you know he was um, just as important and I think London School of Economics was known as the hotbed of socialism. And, um, you know, so obviously we had two socialist people helping us. So with regards to your time with Drama Society, did you start to think then that it could be uh, a career path for you? It was when I had that moment when I realized that I had missed the plane and didn't care. Um that I really knew that there was a transition happening in my life. And I kept saying, so, okay, what is it? What are you going to do if you stay in New York? <laughs> You're not going to get a job as an economist, clearly. So I said, well, I really, really did like that acting stuff. So let me check that out. And I had heard that you had to get a job as a waitress to get that started. And I was able to do that. So your second story picks up where that leaves off and you were becoming quite an actress yourself as you decided to stay in New York and pursue acting. And you were performing in some well-known regional companies like Algonquit. And you also managed to get in three Broadway shows as well. I assume at this point you felt like this is what I'm going to do. Leave those economics and everything behind. I'm now just going to be an actress. It, did it feel like you had found a home now and a career for yourself? It was tough. I mean, it was always tough. You know, you didn't like to have to go and get the next waitressing job. And, you know, and then I had to learn about standing in the unemployment line. And in those days, you had to stand in line. But of course, you saw everyone you knew in the unemployment line. So, but yeah, I mean, it was a strange way of life. So in 1970, I was doing my first Broadway show, I was in rehearsal, and I suddenly discovered I was pregnant. And I said, oh, my God, what do I do? What do I do? My first Broadway show and I'm pregnant. Um, so the stage manager was a woman. I ran to her and she said, well, there's only one person that's going to be told this, and it's Maureen O'Sullivan. She will understand because she was the lady star of the play. So we went to Maureen. And she said, oh, that's wonderful, wonderful. The only thing we have to do is talk to the costume designer. She said, do you remember all those movies that I was in when I used to carry big baskets of flowers? She said, well, that was because I was pregnant and hiding my shape. And so, and this was a period piece, it was Charlie's aunt. So we went to the costume designer who was a woman, also, also was delighted. And so we had all these plans to let the costume out, build it a certain way, have baskets of flowers all over the place. But we didn't run very long, so it was immaterial. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it was, it was a sad story because we should have, we, we had a wonderful director who understood period work and we were having a ball and he, well, poor man, he's not, no longer with us, but Louis Nye was the star, the male star, and he wanted to do stand-up, basically. And, you know, a very funny man, and he was a very nice man. I played opposite him. I was on, sat on his knee through most of the play. But he didn't like to do what was on the page. So he and our director came to terrible blows. And, of course, we arrived at rehearsal one morning to find we had a new director who wasn't very sensitive to period work. And it, the whole play just started to fall apart, and we did not get good reviews. And 
And we should have. We had the most incredible cast. So the complete direction of it changed, obviously, once the new director came in. Yeah, yeah. And so that so that was the first Broadway show experience. You know, it wasn't gorgeous, but it was um, lessons learned. And you have to play the game and you have to do what the director says or you might lose your job. And, you know. So then after that first Broadway show, then you give birth to Kate, your daughter. Yes, we went to my, my ex was doing um, uh, Butterflies are Free on Broadway, which moved to the West End. And because he was married to me he was able to go with the show. So suddenly thought, oh, well, I can go. My show's closed. So we went We went off to London together. So Kate was born in London. And, and that was really nice to be there and be, see old friends again. And his show didn't run. Butterflies are Free did not translate into English theatre at all. It was very funny. I mean, it just didn't. But the audience did not find it that good the way they had it on Broadway. And unfortunately, your marriage did not last very long. No, it didn't. I became a single mother when Kate was 11 months old. And um, he was not a terribly cooperative parent at that point. He has since shaped up. But for most of Kate's upbringing, he was very absent and not sending much money. So it was it was. It was interesting. We were incredibly poor for a long time. I mean, we were, because, I mean, it's hard. And, and I, she was, um, I used to ride my bike everywhere. People used to think it was because I was an exercise freak, but it was because I couldn't afford the subway fare. And, you know, I had to save every penny. And, uh, and then some jobs would come through that would be good. Then I'd get a well-paying job and I'd have to put the money away. And, and also when you have a child, you want the child to have some lessons and this, that and the other. And, you know, uh, she got a scholarship to a really terrific school, which I was certainly not going to turn down. But it didn't come totally free. You still had to keep things up. Of course. Now, how did being yeah. a mother impact your choices going forward? Is it, you know, in your acting career, the kind of shows you would do, how far you'd travel away, that kind of thing? Once, I mean, she she went into a nursery school situation, obviously, up and for the first her first four and a half odd years. And I would pretty much take anything that I wanted to do at that at that point because she could go in and out of such a situation. She could come with me. And um, but I mainly it had to be worth it financially. So these summer tours, summer packages, they were called. They used that there was a certain circuit that they would travel. And in the summer, it was wonderful because there were so many gorgeous places. You know, you were going to the beach in Massachusetts, the beach in Maine, and then country places in New Hampshire where we go horseback riding. So, I mean, we had the days free and we would work at night and babysitters would be produced. And it was wonderful. And I also did some winter packages too. Well, when I did Crown Matrimonial on Broadway, and then that went on to the winter package and the summer package. God, I got about God two years worth of work out of that because they kept packaging it again. So, you know, that was great. And she could come with me to all of those things. How did she take to the traveling theater life as well? Oh, she loved it because I mean, I, you know, actors can be so great. They just, she was like the company mascot in all places. Everybody <laughs> adored her. Everybody spoiled her. She had more uncles and aunts than you can imagine. And I mean, and Maureen O'Sullivan, you know, for the first couple of years of her life, because she lived very close to me on the Upper West Side, she would invite me over, bring Kate over. I don't think she wanted to see me so much, but she'd say, bring Kate over for coffee. 
And um, I worked a lot with, I did two shows with Eileen Hurley, who had done, um, it was in Crown Matrimonial, and uh, playing Queen Mary. And she adored Kate too, and she used to want to see Kate. I mean, it's just, people were just nice. And they, you know, if I wanted to run off and do something, I'll look after her. That's wonderful. So I'll, I'll never forget when I, uh, one of the jot tours that I did um, was with, um, Brian Bedford and um, Tammy Grimes doing Private Lives. And um, Tammy was at a stage where she was desperately wanting to get married and have another child. And so she would ask me for lunch almost every day. Just to be with Kate. <laughs> so she could wheel the pram. So it was, so I mean, it was never a problem. I mean, I think. Was I particularly lucky? Was Kate particularly sweet? I don't know, but I never, it was never a problem. And the theatres, you'd call ahead and say, um, you know, no, don't give me a 12-year-old babysitter. I need someone who knows what she's doing. Um, and they would arrange it. So it actually was fine. It, it was a good experience. And then, of course, she had to go to school, so I had to stop all this traveling stuff. Right, right. So, so it came time when I guess you needed a more stable environment for your daughter, Kate. So, I guess you got to stay in New York more permanently at that point. Yeah, I had to. I had to sort of not go tootling about. So, a friend of mine had become a professor of theater at City College, and he said to me, "You know." you could teach. Why don't you come up to City College and get a master's if you'll sail through it? And he said, then you'll be able to teach. I said, teach? I said, he said, yeah, what else are you going to do? You know, you're going to have to, you don't want to keep waitressing between jobs, do you? So I said, okay. So I did that and and it proved to be quite wonderful. Um, You know, I did it very, very quickly. What was it that connected with you? Learning about stuff I didn't know about thinking I've been in the theatre now for a few years and, oh my God, I don't know much about its history. I don't know much about this. I haven't read enough plays. And suddenly I'm having to read plays and I'm having to find out about, I mean, yes, I knew about the Greek theatre, but I didn't know about the Greek theatre. I mean, you just, it was just opening up a whole world about the career that I was actually living in, but didn't know that much about, I discovered. You know, we had some wonderful professors. Um, Herman Shumlin, does that mean anything to anyone? (laughs) He was a very, very famous director in the 50s. Uh, He was teaching a directing class. And so that was my first directing class was with Herman Shumlin. He was fascinating and wonderful. And it was very funny because at the time, Richard Burton was about to do King Lear, we thought. And he said, you have got an audition, haven't you? You look just like him with better skin. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, no, I haven't got an audition. He said, you will have. And he he arranged for the audition, but it never happened because in the meantime, the production was cancelled and didn't happen. Such is the life of an actor. Yes, we, we have all these grand plans and then nothing. But he was so supportive. And um, so I got the master's. That was a lot of not sleeping very much. I thought this is when I started to not sleep very much. And then I discovered that a master's, an MA, does not get you teaching jobs at colleges. It might get you an improved salary in a high school, but that wasn't what I had any interest in doing. So I was invited to join the PhD program. I thought, how am I going to do that? 
but there were a lot of fellowships came along and and I got lots of fellowships and had to start teaching uh, in uh, as an adjunct all over the city in various colleges they would send me off to and it was terrifying at first to start teaching because I'm saying oh god you know I, I don't know how to teach because they don't that's the one thing when you get a PhD and you are going to go thinking you're going to go into university teaching they don't help you they don't tell you how to teach they don't even tell you the ins and outs of academia you're supposed to sort of osmose it from when you're a student and I was really terrified but students again they can be I didn't have nasty experiences with students which I know some people have had they were usually supportive I, they always liked the way I talked which was really got to be embarrassing they always used to giggle at my accent oh of course to us as us Americans we love the British accent it doesn't matter where where it's from <laughs> protect your dream home with American family insurance and you can weather any storm You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. So while you're in school, you did remain a working actor, though, and, and you landed a role in a soap opera of all places, Guiding Light. How did that come about? Well, it came about because one was always on the list of all the soap operas in New York at that time. You know, this is now, what are we in? We're in the late 70s. Everybody's uh, tries to get a day on a soap because it's not bad money. And, uh, you know, and I'd done a couple of days as an extra on them. And then they asked me to come in and do an under five, which was the next thing up. I don't know what the situations are nowadays because I haven't done anything recently. It's about the same now, yes. And, and then they called me in to do about five under fives. They did, they liked the character. And then before I knew it, I'd got a whole scene. And once they've given you a full part, you can't ever be put back to an under five. So I spent five years. I mean, I was the housekeeper to the Spaldings and they were the central family group. And sometimes my job would be to say dinner is served, but there were other times when I was really involved in the plot. And I mean, when um, Hope Spaulding became an alcoholic and I was having to fight her for the car keys to stop her driving and killing herself. I mean, I really, I, so I had some wonderful scenes. And then there was another time when we got stranded on an island and I wielded a gun to protect young Alan Michael, the baby, from the bandits that were outside, the banditos. So, I mean, so I say, and then the next week I'd be saying dinner is served. You gotta love it. You gotta love it. But it was fabulous because it didn't really, if I'd have had one of those real fabulous emotional parts, I, I don't know that I could have kept going with the PhD as fast as I did. This allowed me an income, time with my child, and, and I did, I wrote a lot of essays in the dressing room of Guiding Light. Now, did it help you? And, you know, as you're teaching these students, did it help you or give you credibility? Oh, I guess, I guess. And, but, you know, you, you, then you're always telling them what you did and they say, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think 
the credibility was interesting because when I started to teach more serious theatre students later, when I got my full-time job, people would say things like, I would never do a soap opera. That was the big thing young actors would say. Right. It was absolutely beneath them. And I would say, well, the money's good. You have to learn the lines fast overnight and you get to the studio at six in the morning, sometimes earlier, and they've changed the lines. And now you've got a whole new script to learn. And he said, it's a very, very good training ground for actors. So please don't poo-poo it. Plus, I'm racking up weeks for pension, which I now appreciate. I'm getting health insurance. I said, there are a few things young people need to think about before you say I'll never do a soap opera. Yes, because there is this artistic idea that we have of what acting can be, but it is still a business. It's, we still have to make a living. We still have mm-hmm. to pay the rent. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I think it's all those experiences add up. And, you know, as you start to teach things, it really does make you reflect um, on what you have learned. And you start to learn new things by trying to convey some of those things to your students and getting their questions, because their questions are always so interesting. So that same time, I was in Stuart Vaughan's weekend company. We called it the, you know, the New Globe. We were doing classic plays and taking them to colleges on weekends. So Kate once again managed to come on tour with me. By now she's sort of like 11 or 12 or so on and she's getting very critical and she used to sort of like to tell us that we weren't being consistent in our performances. And she was very good. I always thought she was going to be a director because she really had an eye when she was 11. (laughs) So it's now 1984 and your schooling was finally done. You have the master's, you have the doctorate degrees under your belt and you got your first full-time teaching job at Barnard College that same year. But it wasn't just teaching, was it? You, you were told that you had to direct shows as well. Did, did you feel like you were ready for that next step? No, no, absolutely. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, Paul, the, the, the chair, he said, I'm sorry, you have to. We all have to. I'm sorry. You, you know, I'm directing and you're directing. We're the two directors. And he said, you've been directed by enough people in enough plays. You'll figure it out. So he said... Just figure out what you're going to do. So that summer, uh, I I think I went to England and I saw The Rover at the RSC by Afra Bain. And I became very obsessed with Afra Bain, the restoration woman playwright that got lost in the history and then was being retrieved. And uh, I loved it. And I said, oh, I could do this. So I went into Paul and I said, I'd like to direct Afra Bain's The Rover. He said, have you lost your mind? I said, no. I said, it's an important play. We need to do it. It's a woman's college. We need to be retrieving women's work. And I would like to do this. And he said, go ahead. You have my blessing. <laughs> and it's sort of, we we got a lot of attention because Afra Bain was suddenly emerging into people's consciousness, especially people who are interested in women in theatre. And uh, so we were reviewed, all sorts of people came to see it. And um, it was a wonderful experience. And then he said, okay, well, what are you going to do for your next one? I I, I said, I think I'll do Hamlet now. He just went cross-eyed and said, go ahead. And and I said, the young woman who played Hamlet is now on the board at Antaeus. So that's sort of lovely things joining up later. 
And then I continued to direct other things, you know, sort of, I think I did it, the one every other year, I think I directed a play there. And I always did classical plays or women's plays. And it sounded like that you took a different take on things. You, you weren't just doing the the classics that everyone does. You wanted to do things that were a bit obscure or like Hamlet, obviously well well known and well done, but take a different take at it with, yes, with all women cast. I mean, I actually cast four men because the men, you see, Barnard housed the theatre department for both Columbia and um, Barnard at that point. And so men were starting to drift over because this was a new theatre department when I joined it in 84. It had just been being part of English. They'd just done a few courses. And so it was a brand new department. So men were sort of drifting over a little bit. And But even when we did the Rover, not enough men drifted over and we actually had to bring in some professional actors to round things out. Thank God they could do that. Uh, but for Hamlet, I said, no, I've got the women. And then the men started to come over. And then I said, I know, let's cast the men as the players. And it was very interesting because when you know everybody had got completely used to the sound of the female voice, and then suddenly these different voices were sounding. So the outsiders, who of course changed the course of the play. So that was a wonderful, uh, lucky thing that happened. So I liked uh, bringing in. So I'm glad those men did come over to audition because they were good and they added to, to the whole thing. But essentially it was a lot of women, a lot of women on that stage. As you've heard so far, Elizabeth has such a rich history of stories and experiences. And in her bonus episode of Audition Stories, she is just as prolific offering up three stories from both in front of and behind the audition table, as well as an anecdote about James Dean's Broadway debut. Now, bonus episodes like these are only available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It. Producing this podcast isn't exactly cheap, and with your help, I can continue creating more episodes and reaching a wider audience. So please consider a one-time donation like longtime friend of this podcast, Robin Kirkpatrick, or subscribing to that monthly membership, which includes bonus episodes, by going to whyillnevermakeit.com or click on the link in the show notes. So as we head into your third story, you've now been at Barnard for about 11 years, and there was a huge shakeup in the theater department as all 13 faculty members were, were let go. It was painful beyond imagination. I mean, and it, and it didn't happen like, you, you, it was slowly, slowly, slowly happening. I mean, it was like, what is going on? Is this really gonna happen? Is this? And um, there were many factors and many people involved in it. The theater department had an odd place at Barnard and I think it's probably true less so nowadays, or maybe even more so nowadays, I don't know. But there was the idea of why in a liberal arts college would you want to have an acting class and a design class and a directing class? And there were fights in the faculty meetings about this, about really supporting these new courses. And it was interesting because people in the humanities, the English department, where the people were saying, no, you don't need to do that. I mean, this is liberal arts. We, we need 
the scientists were on our side, they all said, of course, it's the laboratory. You can't have theory without practice. And they were our biggest supporters. Well, yeah, it's a liberal arts. Arts is in the title. So you would think that artistic people would want fellow artists. Yeah, well, they didn't. <laughs> so it's all crumbled. And I was kept on because I, I was the only one with a multi-year contract. And so I had to stay on an additional year at least they managed to get rid of me for the second year and give me a leave or something but i but it was it was very unpleasant it was very unhappy time did that disillusion you at all uh, about teaching or just at barnard specifically not teaching and not barnard it's just about academia about the values and the things that can go on in academia the politics involved right yeah it was it was difficult and then i applied for some jobs but now i'm a woman in my 50s and you know it wasn't the the offers weren't coming and I'd also you know reached a certain level and had to be paid certain amounts because I had a rank and they didn't want ranks they wanted beginners so they could pay them less and so on so I was not getting any nibbles and I was really getting quite desperate um I managed some people I who I knew from before uh, put me in their play that they were doing down in Washington and we brought it to New York and we did it off Broadway and that occupied maybe about three three four months and that was that was great did that feel like a step forward like hey oh, oh I'm back to acting again yeah it felt good that I was doing something that I always liked and, and you could have respect for yourself when you're doing things like that but it was then I would start going I had no agent and and you know Earlier, when I'd been an actor, half of my jobs weren't got with agents. You know, I mean, uh, yes, I had an agent at various points, but because people knew me, I'd get a job, you know, but not not anymore. And I, I didn't know people and I had no agent and I was going to open calls and sitting around for hours on end and thinking, OK, if I can be acting, I'll be fine. But if I'm spending my life in open calls after being <laughs> Theatre professor in a respected university. I mean, it's like, oh shit, what have I come? What is my, where is my life going? And um, I then got a friend recommended me for a fellowship at the University of the South in Tennessee, and I got it. And that was a really wonderful experience. And they asked me to direct a play and to teach a course. And I taught the course on women in theater and caused a lot of trouble because- How so? <laughs> well, I was introducing ideas that hadn't been rampant. I mean, apparently some of my students were going to other professors and saying, why are there no women poets on our syllabus? And why are there no women this, that, and the others on that thing? You were stirring the pot. I also cast the first black woman as a lead in the play, playing opposite a white man, and that caused a little stir. But I, but anyway, I'm I'm glad I did all of that. It it was it was um, I like stirring up the pot. <laughs> <laughs> did it, did you see some good come out of that stirring up that you did? Apparently, uh, because the, the, one of the things you see, the, the vagina monologues had just come on the scene. It had just been published the year I went down there, just been published. And I ordered it for the library. 
And apparently, you know, when the students would go to pick up their library copy, it would be handed to them like they're handing something smelly to them. It was just, it was just, they, they used to come back with these crazy stories about the librarians. Oh and what is this? What is this? But of course, the students in the class decided they were going to do the vagina monologues. So, and apparently they've done it every year since. I mean, I'm, I'm out of touch with it now, but I know for at least 10 years afterwards, they were doing the annual vagina monologues. So yeah, oh so gosh. I guess something did come out of it. Yeah. Now during this, you did have bouts of unemployment and, you know, many actors, we look for those restaurant jobs or temp work, that kind of thing. What did you look for during those bouts of unemployment at that time? Well, that was, of course, when people would really, really try to get the soap opera days because, you know, a day on a soap. And there were very few television shows being shot in New York at the time. There was NYPD. There were probably about three or four television series that was shot in New York. Otherwise, you've got films that were caught. So, you know, you you take anything. And it's better to do a day's extra work and get union credit than it would be to waitress if you you know, if you could get enough of those days. But I was lucky that at one point, I don't even know how I got it, but I got a job working for Jimmy Niederlander in his office. And, and Liz McCann was also his sort of right-hand woman and Nell Nugent. And they were really good to me. They allowed me to do my own hours. I was very good at sorting things out for them. I did a lot of drudge work, but they gave, I, you know, my French was pretty good at that point. They gave me a new French play to translate. I mean, so I got a lot of fun things to do. And every time I was out of work, I could call them and say, do you, can you use me? And they'd say, yeah. I mean, that went on for years. Um, but it began before I was pregnant. And I was, and while I was pregnant, I was working there after, um, before we went to London, after, um, you know, the play closed that I was in when I discovered I was pregnant. And I went back and worked with Jimmy Needlander for a few weeks. And he always called me the pregnant actress. And a little bit later, I got into on Broadway, Sherlock Holmes, which he had produced. And he would come backstage every now and then to see what was going on. And he'd look at me and say, oh, the pregnant actress. So I'm glad you're acting. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny, man. He never remembered my name, I don't think. So I, I was lucky with some of those things. Uh, before I got the fellowship down in, in Tennessee, I had no money left. My unemployment had run out. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And someone said, go to that temp agency they they like actors you'll get something there so i went there and i was interviewed but what what must have been a 15 year old it looked like to me and she said you have a very interesting resume i've never seen anything like it but you have no marketable skills <laughs> don't you love that oh gosh and so um i should actually i should blame my father for that my father told me when i was a teenager he said don't learn to type you will become some man's slave if you do he was trying to make sure i never became a secretary or something like that so i never learned to type i am still the worst typist i had to pay people to type my dissertation because i couldn't do it fast enough oh my gosh i was horrible at typing i remember there was this one class i didn't even know but this was in college and the first day of the class it's like in order to take this class you have to pass a typing test 
what this is just a journalism class what why does it matter how fast i type as long as i can get the story out but i remember going into the the computer lab and i was just I've never had a panic attack before, but I think if I've had one, it was then. I was breathing heavy. I was like, I had the stars coming in my eye. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm never. I was just so nervous, racked with just anxiety trying to pass that test. I think whatever the lowest score was admissible, I got one more than that. Oh, so well I, done. I wouldn't right, have done. <laughs> right, right. At least I, I like barely, barely passed. But um, yeah, so I, I, I feel you when it comes to typing. So that was one of the marketable skills that I lacked. And she said, I could give you a receptionist job. Um, and I think I, it seems to me the pay was something like $7.50 an hour. And, you know, I just come from a Barnard salary, I thought. And I, I just went home and I, I, I swear I didn't get off the couch for two days. I just cried and cried and cried. Uh, it was just like, I just thought, this is it. Uh, what do I do? Do I, I'll be homeless before I know it. And then Marymount Manhattan came through. I mean, it's sort of the timing, thank God. And um, so I started at Marymount Manhattan and I was there for 10 years and I voluntarily left Marymount Manhattan. <laughs> a much better exit this time, yes. It was really good. It was much harder than Barnard. We had the, the teaching load was pretty high and you were always doing extra things. It was like, it, it took about a full-time job. I mean, it was I was directing a lot there too, which means that you're there at night. I was teaching three courses in the day and then um, supervising student projects. There was just a lot of extra stuff that had to be done, but it was, I liked it. And uh, the students were interesting um, and a very diverse, more, much more so than had been the case at Barnard. But uh, I was only teaching theater students at Marymount. And that's where you met Deborah Ann Bird, was that's where it? I met Deborah Ann, yeah. I mean, at Barnard, I taught theater history, literature courses, the whole gamut. Whereas at Marymount Manhattan, I was one of the acting teachers and directing teachers. So that was it. Because there were so many, a huge department, of course. I mean, the theater department is the largest department there. How would you describe your relationship with Deborah Ann and, and what was it like teaching her? Well, I first laid eyes on Deborah Ann when she did, and I wish to God I could remember which Greek play it was. I said, who on earth is that? And they said, oh, that's Deborah Ann. And so then we met a few times and then she came into my class and what a powerhouse. And she told me some of her story and uh, I thought, well, you know, I've never come overcome odds like she's overcome. And she's getting stronger and stronger every day. And I was lucky enough to meet her, her lovely daughter, Martha, and, uh, you know, several times. And um, she, she started to come to me to talk occasionally. So I think I realized that she was trusting me. And I, you know, I was sort of, it was fascinating to hear in her play where she refers to me and in your interview with her, you know, it's wonderful when you discover that you did have an effect on someone. I would never have thought of that, except she did invite me to work with her when she formed her company up in Harlem. And the first thing I did with her was an adaptation of 
an Afro-Bains novel, Orinoco, which had been adapted by a Nigerian playwright called B. Bandele. And then she asked me to direct Hamlet for her. She lost the space up in Harlem that we were supposed to do it in. I think there was some money problems came in for the company. And I knew there was, there was a lot of toughness that she was having to, she was having to fight a lot of things. And she never gave up. She said, don't worry, Liz, we're going to do it. We do it. Don't worry. It's not your problem to worry. It's my problem, not yours. And she was solving problems. I mean, I don't think she ever went to bed. And she was amazing. She got us through. We had to do it in a little tiny theater. And I said, well, how are we going to make this work? The actors were just absolutely with Debran and I guess with me. And we made it work. She just was a very special person in my life. And we are, you know, loosely in touch. And in fact, I've had two or three friends who have seen the show, not knowing her, that I knew her. And then suddenly I said, oh, she talks about you in it. You're in her play. <laughs> so that was lovely. Yeah. So as you've transitioned from one job to the next, from one location to the next, what would you say has been the, the common theme or message that you've learned on this journey so far? Don't let anything get you down for too long. I think you can absorb the things that could get you down so that you know how to cope with them, but then pull up your britches and get on with it. Because I certainly had to do that several times, sort of like becoming a single parent and all the whole thing. Don't focus on the negative for too long. And I, and I have a trap there. I can do that. But I have to, you know, know that I mustn't. Yeah, I, I will say that this pandemic was really, you know, I'd had bouts of my own self-doubt and unemployment and just kind of wondering what's next. But the pandemic, I think, was the first time I'd ever really thought, what, what am I? if not an actor? What am I if not a creative person? What, what am I if I don't have the artistry that I love to do? Did, did you find yourself at certain moments in your career also thinking that? I think it was what am I without some aspect of theatre. When I was told I had to teach, which is basically what I was told, I didn't sort of come to it myself. Um, so I, I'm not leaving the theatre, I'm leaving acting for a bit, but I'm still in the theatre and I'm talking about acting and now I'm teaching acting. And then, you know, when I started to direct, because, I mean, I did spend a lot of time not acting. I mean, almost 20 years with that, the odd thing that would pop up here and there and I would do some voiceovers and stuff like that. But I wasn't really acting a lot in plays for 20 years, but I was learning how to direct. So I was still in theatre. And I was dealing with acting. <laughs> I never left the theatre. I think that's what that's the one lesson I have in it. Whatever I was doing, I really never left the theatre except when I was waiting on tables. And everyone knew you were an actor when you were waiting on tables. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. That's one of the quintessential jobs. And so yeah. has your definition of success or making it changed as you've gone through these various transitions? Yes, when I was in my 20s, I said, well, if I'm not a star by the time I'm 30, the hell with it. <laughs> well, I wasn't a star by the time I was 30. What I was was a single mother with a new baby um, in the theatre. So, yeah. So, yes, I think success, what is that? It doesn't mean anything, really. It just means, if are you happy doing what you're doing? That's success. And I think, essentially, I'm very happy. At least the challenges come every day. Um, but 
I'm happy fighting the challenges. I'm glad I never left the theater. I'm glad I didn't become an economist. That's for sure. <laughs> right. Well, uh, this has been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your journey and your lessons that you've learned along the way. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining Elizabeth and myself today. But remember, the conversation continues with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find a link to the blog in the show notes or by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. And you heard Elizabeth mention the British poet and playwright Afra Bain, who was the first successful female writer in British history. There's a link to a great Smithsonian article about her in the show notes as well. Well, as always, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Hartman. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.